good morning once again. Um, we are going to be in Ezra chapter 9, and we're going to read chapter nine, all of chapter 9 and then the first five verses of chapter 10. I won't have you stand since we're reading so much, um, and the pastor's away so we can kind of let our hair down and relax a little bit. <clears throat> Um, while you're opening your Bibles to Ezra chapter 9, I'm just going to give a recap of chapter 8 because we kind of skipped that. Pastor Jordan spoke on chapter 7 last week um, in, in our daily reading. We read chapter 8, part of chapter 8. But just to give you a recap, just so that we can get up to speed so that when we pick up on chapter 9, we know where we're at. Um, in Ezra 8, 21 through 23, Ezra, Ezra excuse me, is preparing to make his journey back to Jerusalem. It's a four-day journey. <clears throat> In verse 31, they depart for Jerusalem. In verse 32, they arrive. They stay then in Jerusalem, the city, for three days. And on the fourth day, they go into the temple, which is rebuilt. They count everything. They issue, uh, I think it was called commissions to the leaders. Um, and then on the fourth day, they also make sacrifices um, for and sin offerings as well. Now we're going to pick up in Ezra chapter 9, and if you've got your Bible, please follow along with me. Picking up in verse 1, it says, After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with people of the lands, and this faithlessness, this faithless, faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men have been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and I pulled my hair from my head and beard, and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the word of God of Israel, because of this faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered with me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garments and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread my hands out to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may, be, may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins and give, it, give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now... Oh, our God, what shall we say after this? We have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying the land that you are entering into, take possession of it, is a land impure 
with the impurity of the people of the lands, with their abominations. They have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons. And never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that we, so that there should be no more remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as today. And behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. <clears throat> and while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, and the son of Elam addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God, and we have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and children, according to the counsel of my Lord, and those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests and the Levite, Levites, all of Israel, take an oath that they would do all that had been said, and so they took the oath. I know that was a lot, but let us pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for your word, Lord. God, we thank you, Lord, that... that Sometimes, Lord, it can be overwhelming when we go to your word, Lord, but if we just slow down, Lord, and listen for you, Lord, that you will speak. And, Lord, we ask that today. Lord, we set aside all of our distractions, Lord, of life, all the things that want to pull us away, Lord, and make us not hear. Lord, even sometimes our eyelids get heavy and we get sleepy. Lord, we just ask you, Lord, to, to help us, Lord, to hear you today. Lord, as I stand aside, Lord, speak through me, Lord, and even teach me, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> have, you ever, have you ever had a time in your life where you thought things were going really good, you know, and then all of a sudden, out of left field, somebody came with some news that you're just like, what? And it just floored you? Like, seriously? Like, now? Like, Things are going good, and this now? Well, that's what happened to Ezra, if you could kind of put yourself in this place. Like here, think about, think about what had happened at this time. As Pastor Jordan preached last week, there was a time gap between um, Ezra 6 and 7, or 7 and 8, excuse me, and that's when Esther, the book of Esther was written. And so all this time, the temple's being built, and now finally Ezra's on his way to get back to, to the temple in Jerusalem, and it's built, and it's like, everything's going good. We got, all the, we got all this gold that the king's given us, and we've divided it up, and we've counted it, and we've weighed it, and everything's falling into place, and everything's coming into order, and they go into the temple, and here comes the party poopers. Yep. The bearers of bad news, and what was the bad news? 
The bad news was that the people, and mainly the leadership, the priests, the Levites, the leadership were doing the exact same thing that got them led into captivity in the first place. You can go back. I've got a note in here. I, I believe it's Jeremiah 39 through 43. You can read those chapters to see what, how they came into captivity. It was because of, they got led astray by the people. And again, as I said, there was a time gap here. So, so this time gap, it wasn't just that when we, when we see Ezra's response, his response wasn't so extreme. It wasn't extreme because they found themselves alive and made a family. No, it wasn't like that. There was a time gap here, remember, about 50 years. So this was an established family. They spend time with the wife. Now we got almost grown children, probably grown children, maybe grandchildren out of, the, out of these families. There was time that passed here, so <clears throat> they had become attached. The problem wasn't that they, they made families and started new families. It was that these spouses were pagans, and they were going to lead them back into the, the very idolatry that got them brought into captivity in the first place. Why does that happen? Well, have you ever heard of generational curses in the Bible? Well, here's why it's generational curses. It's not because somebody says, blah, 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 and your family's cursed. No, it's because children will do what they see their parents do. What they see their parents do, they're going to do. So think about yourself now. Th think about this situation here in Ezra where you have people who are trying to return back to God. They're marrying pagans who, do, who practice idolatry, meaning they worship little idols, little statues, little whatevers. You know, an idol can be anything. There can, anything can become an idol. So they, they put these idols, they put them before God. The children see, okay, well, maybe, maybe dad wants to go back to God, but mom doesn't really do that. And I'm going to lean towards mom because, you know, she has more fun. Right? So the kid grows up and is, is distant from God, is distant from God. Then that child has a child, and then the distance gets further. And the next thing you know, a couple generations later, and there's no God in the family at all. See, that, that's where the generational cur curse comes from. It's because what you, you do what you're taught. You do what you see. Monkey see, monkey do. And so with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, all the Ittites that are listed in there, um, <clears throat> I want to stress this because people take the Bible out of context so much, and it drives me crazy. The problem here was not with the ethnicity of the intermarrying. It wasn't that there was interracial marrying. That's not the problem. The problem was the idolatry. The problem was that the people of God then started doing what these pagans were doing. Now, I'll put it into perspective for you here. We got the youth in here today, especially a lot of, a lot of females. This is very important, what I'm going to say. Okay, I've raised three girls. That's why I'm bald. Why do girls go after the bad boy all the time? Why? Why do girls like the bad boy? They, they, they say in their minds, oh, yeah, I'm going to change him. He's going to come to church. He's going he's to join the youth group. It's going to be good. It never happens. He may come once. And that's it. He'll tell you everything you want to hear. But it never happens. What always happens is 
the boy will pull the girl away. And it's, it's, a, it's a slow fade. You ever heard that Casting Crown song? It's a slow fade. It's just, it's just one Sunday, then it's two Sundays you missed, then it's the Wednesdays. Next thing you know, a month goes by. You haven't been to church. You haven't been reading. You haven't been around anybody Christian. You start picking up those habits. This is exactly what happened here in Ezra with the people of God. Start slipping away a little bit at a time. Just, just a little pagan worship. Just, oh, yeah, that's okay. You can do that. That's, I don't mind. No, you can't bring that in the house. Well, okay, now you can bring it in the house. Next thing you know, if there's a saying, if you give the devil an inch, I forgot the rest. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if you give the devil an inch, he'll become a ruler. He'll take over a little bit at a time. Give the devil an inch, he will become a ruler. And that's exactly what happened here. And this is why Ezra's response is so extreme, it seems. He's pulling his hair out and pulling his beard out over this. He's like so upset. He's like, we've come so far and gotten, gotten the temple rebuilt, and now you want to go and do this? We're going to end up right back where we were. Like, he is just totally distraught by this. It says he sit, sits astonished until the evening sacrifice, just sitting there just like, I cannot believe this. Like, just can't believe this. And that, that brings us to our first point here is that, you know, th this whole book, this whole chapter is about repentance. And we see the gospel in this chapter because the gospel is repentance. Jesus said, without repentance, you'll perish. And repentance, first point is that repentance will bring godly sorrow, not just worldly sorrow. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it says, for godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Well, what is worldly grief? Worldly grief is, oh, you caught me? Well, I'm sorry. And you don't really mean it. You're just saying sorry because you got caught. Godly sorrow is a realization of what you've actually done without anybody telling you other than God convicting your heart. That's godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is actually, you, you could replace it with conviction. It's conviction from God. And we have in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, this is so important. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And what fellowship has light with darkness? Young ladies, when you start dating a guy and he says, oh yeah, I'm Christian, yeah. But there's no fruit in his life. There's no evidence. What church do you go to? Oh, I go to... Really? There's got to be an evidence of faith. Because young ladies and young men, those, those nice honeys out there will pull you away too. Don't, don't, you know, that's what happened here in Ezra. But I see it more in women. That's why I'm focusing more on the, on the young ladies here. They'll pull you away. They'll pull you away. And it's a, it's, a, it's a slippery slope and it's a slow fade. You won't even realize it. Next thing you know, next thing you know, you, you haven't been in church for a while. But Ezra, he wasn't grieved, again, as I said, because the people were having families, but because they were about to repeat the mistake that got them there. They were falling into idolatry again. They didn't even realize it. These years had passed by. They're building a temple. Hey, everything's going good. Oh, hey, how you doing? What's your name? You want to go out tonight? Next thing you know, the idolatry is in their house again. 
And think about modern day critics. Like if we put ourselves back in that time or if we could replace that time with now, think about what people would say in our modern day world. They would say something like, oh, that's such an old fashioned rule. That's so outdated. Yeah, you know, you know, we're, we're in a new century now. Love is love, right? We can, we can love who we want. God is love, so he wants me to love my family, right? Well, let me ask you this. Brother Jordan brought it up last week. What is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is for us to love the Lord our God with all of our strength, all of our soul, and all of our might, right? To love him above everything else, to love God above everything else. That is the greatest commandment. That begs the second question here. What is it called when we put anything before that? Idolatry. It can be anything. I tell people my Jeep is a borderline idol. Border, it's borderline. I'm not calling it an idol, but it's, it's borderline, okay? But it can be anything. It can be, it can be a thing. It can be a thought. It can be a tradition. It can be anything that you put before God. You can say, well, I know God says this, but whenever there's that but, there's an idol. I know the word of God says this, but mm -mm, idol. That's an idol in our lives. And, and the thing about it is, this is what upset Ezra so much, is that God's people are not called to be slaves. God's people are not called to be slaves in bondage of sin. Slaves to righteousness, yes, but not slaves to sin and bondage. Slaves to righteousness, we've been set free. We've been made free by the king of kings. They had a freedom here by, by the king who, who gave them mercy, which was initiated by God. But we've been given freedom through Christ Jesus. And we're not called to be captives of sin either. And then in verses 6 through 15, this brings me to my second point, is that repentance requires confession. This may seem like a no-brainer to you. It is. But the reason I say this is because some people may not realize this. And, and I've learned this because I, I'm, there's this guy on TikTok called Atheist Asks You Answer. And he's a self-professed, fallen-away Christian and, and in speaking with him, answering his questions, I realized he really doesn't know some of the most basic, simple things. And that's probably why he fell away in the first place. But repentance requires confession. And this is what we see in this picture here, verses 6 through 15. We see Ezra making a confession. And then we also see in this the picture of, of Christ, in a sense, We see a foreshadowing of Jesus through this prayer as well. And, and I'll get to that in just a second. Um, but repentance requires confession. In 1 John 1, 9, it says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. <clears throat> Thank God for that faithfulness right there. I remember I was taught that scripture as an early Christian, and I still hold on to it today many years later. It is so important. Jesus said for us to forgive our brothers how many times? 
seven times 70 in one day, I can tell you right now, if I have to repeat myself five times, I'm getting irritated. 490 times in a day is a little bit much, okay? You, I mean, it's going to be pushing it for me as a human. Really? You, you, five times? No. I'm going to have a hard time with that. But then I think about myself going to God, okay, how many times in a day do I sin against God and he forgives me faithfully? And, and there's times, you know, it's, my prayer is, God, forgive me for the things that I don't even know that I did. Because there's sins of omission. There's things that we do that we don't even realize that we do. We offend God that, that are sinful. And until he reveals those to us, and, and I think sometimes God is, is, he reveals them to us a little bit at a time because it would probably blow our minds if he showed us all the sinfulness, all of our sinfulness at once. We'd probably just want to go crawl in a hole and die at that point. <laughs> if, if, he, if he showed me all my sinfulness at once, we'd probably just blow up. And then Proverbs um, 28 Verse 13, it says, whoever conceals his transgressions or sins will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Well, confessing them is the first part. And what, why do we have to confess them? It's, isn't God all-knowing? He knows everything. He knows everything I've ever done. So why do I have to confess them? Well, the confession is actually for us because it humbles us. It brings us to a, a place of humility where we can say, God, I messed up. I blew it. It, it. It's admitting our imperfection, and that is okay. And God is okay with that. God already knew all of the sins that I was going to commit before I was even born. He's not surprised by anything. Ooh, Mike, ooh, you pulled that one off, and I never saw that coming. No, God's not like that. He, he knew everything. There's people who argue that God doesn't know everything and doesn't know the future, but I, did, I totally disagree. You can see the evidence in, in the Bible that God knew everything before it ever happened, and he knows every sin that we will commit before we ever do it. So why do we have to confess it? Humility. He just wants us to be humble before him. He gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. Put that on this month's calendar celebration. But confession is a true pouring out from the heart. You can read Psalm 51 and see David's confession from the heart and compare it here to Ezra's pouring out. And there's some parallels here that I'm going to show you with Christ. But pouring out from the heart requires, number one, honesty. Honesty with yourself and honesty with God. And sometimes that means admitting hard, hard things about ourselves that maybe we don't like. Maybe we don't want to admit. But God calls us to admit all these things before him so that he can give us mercy and grace. When I worked at JSO, I was in, involved in a, in a weekly meeting called Servant Leadership. And Servant Leadership, I, I'd never heard that term before when I, before I started working at JSO and was involved in this meeting. Um, but, but now, as I look back, I can see that Jesus was actually a model perfect servant leader in the sense of what servant leadership is. And we also, we see that foreshadowing of Christ as servant leader here in Ezra's prayer. Look at Ezra here. He's owning sin. When we look at the language that he says, Ezra's owning sin that's not his. Ezra wasn't out intermarrying with the pagans and committing idolatry. He was trying to facilitate all of this and teaching the people the word of God so they'd be ready 
for the temple to be back in operation. He was trying to do God's work. But yet in his prayer, look at the language. He says, oh, my God, I am ashamed in verse six. And he says, I blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt is mounted up to the heaven. He didn't say their guilt, their sins. He didn't point the finger, in other words. And that's what servant leadership is about. Servant leadership is about sometimes taking ownership of things that you didn't necessarily do. Maybe it was your team that you're in charge of that messed up. But as a servant leader, you own that as if you've done it yourself. We messed up. We blew it. We will do better next time. We will learn from our mistakes. That, that's servant leadership. Jesus took sin upon himself, owned our sin that was not his, and took it upon himself as if it was his to give us his righteousness. He was the perfect servant leader. He took our due punishment upon himself, and Ezra is here suffering for sins that he didn't commit either. You see the parallel between Jesus and Ezra in this prayer here. Ezra is appealing to God, standing in the gap, if you will, as a priest, a high priest should do. Jesus is our great high priest who stood in the gap that our sin separated us from God with. And Jesus has not only, not only filled that gap one time, but he is continually making intercession for us, praying for us on our side. But when we look at the language that Ezra used in his prayer, we look at it more in detail, we notice that Ezra comes out as a true priest in this situation. The priest makes an offering. Um, a priest normally makes an offering for sins, but here Ezra is not at the altar giving a sermon in three points about how to improve their life. No, Ezra is identifying with the people. He's identifying himself with the people that he represents. So he beats his own breast and he's shamed and he's pulling his hair and his beard identifying with these people. Think about Jesus for a second. Jesus entered into space and time who was eternal, took on human form to identify himself with the people that he wants to represent, us, if we will come to him. Jesus' hair and his beard were plucked. His back was broken, beaten, not physically broken, but beaten. He beat his breath. He was punished. He was tortured, and he suffered for sins that were not his. In the same way, you see the parallel here, the foreshadowing of Jesus in Ezra's prayer and his reaction. Ezra confessed sin that was not his own, giving us an example of servant leadership as Jesus is our servant leader. Third point here is repentance takes action. <clears throat> In Acts 3.19, um, Bible says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. In Acts 26, 19 and 20, I'm going to paraphrase this real quick and just give you a in, the, in this chapter here, in, this ver in these verses, Paul is standing before King Agrippa and he's accused. And, and King Agrippa says, well, what, did, what did you do? 
And, and Paul says, I taught them that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds or actions in keeping with their repentance. John the Baptist said something similar. He said, and it's in Luke, I don't know off the top of my head, but just what he said came to my mind just now, and I'll share it with you. He said the same thing. He said, do works that are meat for repentance. In other words, do what you said you're going to do. Do something that shows you repented. Don't just say, listen, you can stand before a judge downtown and say, I'm sorry, judge, and it don't mean squat. Right? It doesn't mean squat. And same thing with God. We can tell God we're sorry. We can tell people we're sorry. But just telling somebody you're sorry doesn't mean squat unless there's no action behind it. Right? Doesn't mean nothing. We can say, I'm sorry, and then go do the same thing again, and what good did sorry do? No. There's got to be some kind of action, and repentance takes action. That word repentance is actually an action word. It's a verb. I failed English, okay, but I know that repentance is not a noun, person, place, or thing. <laughs> it's a verb. And look what, in, in chapter 10 here, in the first few verses, look what, they, look what they opted to do. And let's talk about this for a minute, because this was hard. This was kind of hard for me. When I first read this, I was like, dang, giving up their wives and children? Ooh, that's kind of rough. That's hard. But think about it for a second here. I, I'm sure, and the Bible doesn't tell this, so I'm kind of speculating, but I am sure that there were some wives who said, okay, I'll get, a, I'll get rid of the idols, and we won't do that anymore. We will worship your God. I'm sure that there were some that did that. At least I hope. But then think about their response when they said, okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to put away these wives and children. Now, now, again, like I said, there was a time, a gap that, that this, this family is now established. There's like 50-something years. I think it was 53 years, if I'm not mistaken, of time that went by. So th this is an established family, and they're talking about putting away wives and children here in this at this time now. This is hard. Can you imagine? I can't imagine. I can't even fathom. I can't even fathom the thought. But, and, and then we have this discrepancy with what the Word of God says. God says he hates divorce but we're going to put away our wives and children. That, that's what it means, put away. We're going to divorce. We're going to divorce our, our wives and put away our children. And God hates divorce. But here in this situation now, they're, they're faced, they're at a crossroad. And I believe, this is just my personal belief, I believe they chose the lesser of two evils here because here they're facing either returning into the same circle of captivity again or they've got to get a divorce for those wives that don't want to put away their idols. They've got to, Put away there. They've got to choose God. They've got to put God first. Yes, God hates divorce, but they entered into that relation, that sinful relationship in sin to begin with. So now they've they've got to, they've put themselves in a situation where they've got to make a hard choice. Sometimes in our lives, our decisions, our decisions have consequences, and we've got to make hard choices to put God first again. That's got to be the hardest part because think about this. They've fallen in love with what is sin in God's eyes. They've married it. They've married what is sin in God's eyes, these, these 
not the people themselves are sin, but what they do, what they've done, what leads the people. But, but here's, here's what we have today as Christians now walking in the 21st century. And again, people take scripture out of context, but this is what it's meant by Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yes, I made bad decisions. Yes, there are consequences. And now I've got to make another hard decision to put you first, God, but I can do it through you, Jesus. That's what that scripture means. Not that we can win a football game. It's not about that. It's about putting God first in everything, being content where we are in life, putting him first. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Repentance takes action. When we realize that, that's when we properly have put God above everything else. There's no one in the Bible that was never tested in this. Everyone was tested. Everyone gets tested. Will you put God first? Look at Abraham. Look at Abraham. I mean, that, think about that. My only, my son, God, you promised me this son, and now you want me to bring him to the altar? And then, of course, God told him to stop, but you see the test. We, we all are tested at some point in life if we will put God first in everything. I promise you that. And there, there is a scripture in Deuteronomy that says that somewhere, that he tests all that he loves. Um, but let us not forget that we're no better than anybody else in the Bible period. Sometimes we can get a big head and say, yeah, I live in a different time. I live under a new covenant. I'm better than, than these people who went through these things in the Old Testament. No, we're not. None of us are. We still, if, if they had genes back then, they'd put them on the same way we do today. We're no different. And then, um, for those of us who have been walking with the Lord for a while and and maybe we've become stagnant and growing in some area of our life. Maybe there's something that God has revealed to us that's keeping us in bondage in that certain area that we're not willing to let go of. It may be hard because we've fallen in love with it, like these people in Ezra 9 and 10. Maybe we've been praying for some kind of breakthrough or restoration somewhere but we're not willing to go through the renovation because it might require require cutting some walls down you know restoration you know we've got this uc partnership you go in the fellowship hall you see there's holes in the wall holes in the ceiling there's things they're doing they, sometimes you got to cut away things to make to, to to restore it to get it to the place where god can use it that's the renovation part and here god wants to renovate us. We are his temple. He wants to rebuild his temple. He wants to renovate his temple in us. Sometimes we got to tear down a wall. We got to let God in. We may have to be vulnerable. That's okay. It's okay. You know, when you break a bone and it heals, it's twice as strong than it was before it was broken in that spot. God wants to make us a strong people he wants to restore us he wants to use us sometimes we got to let go of something to get something 
You know, I can't hold on to I can't hold on to this piece of paper and 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 say, hey, we we hand me that uh, sandwich over there. I'm not going to be able to eat the sandwich. I'm not going to be able to hold, to get the sandwich unless I let go of the paper to get the sandwich. And I like sandwiches. Okay. Sometimes you got to let go of something to get something. Sometimes, in order for God to restore us, He's got to renovate us. And it's all about repentance. You see the gospel in Ezra 9 and 10 here. It's all about repentance. It's all about sometimes you've got to give up some hard things. You've got to make some hard choices to make sure God's first. I'm going to leave you with uh, a quote from A.W. Tozer, and I'm going to ask you a few questions here to just consider within yourselves. A.W. Tozer says, Repentance isn't only sorrow for past sins. It is also a determination to now do the will of God as he reveals it to us. How does God reveal his will to us? I know we're a Southern Baptist church, but you can participate and speak out. I promise I won't tell on you, Pastor Micah. You, through his word, amen. Through his word. That's how he reveals his will to us. So guess what? The world and everything in it wants to keep us, distract us, and pull us away from his word. If we're not in his word, guess what we're not going to know? The will of God. So if God reveals something that's sinful in our lives and we say, okay, God, I'm sorry, well, what do we do? What action do we take? We don't know because we haven't read the will of God to fill that, that gap in our life. <clears throat> so here are some questions for us to consider throughout the week. <clears throat> Excuse me, i got to get a sip of water. Noah said he was going to bring me some frozen orange juice, but <laughs> he's got the jug back there. <laughs> Here's some questions for us to consider uh, when it comes to making sure that we've got God first in our lives. Do we look at what God calls sin and it not bother us? Do we change things so that we don't offend other people? And do we consider that maybe that offends God? Do we think that, that we could ever be so repulsed by sin that we would pull our hair out like Ezra did? Can you imagine that? If, now think about, like, that was just Ezra. Now think about how repulsed God is by sin if that was just a man who acted like that. Here's something that I really want to make sure everybody gets out of this message. If you don't get anything else, please get this. Please see that Ezra and Israel moved from a place of conviction to confession to commitment to take action. That's what has to happen with repentance. You get the conviction, you make the confession, but you've got to commit to take action because repentance is a action. You've got to turn around. That's why it says repent towards God. When you read that in the Bible, it says repent towards God. Because the problem is you're not going towards God. You're going this way and God's back here. So that's why the Bible says repent towards God. Because you need to turn around and go the other way. It says repent towards God. Commit to take that action. 
And then this last one here, and I'll call the, the praise team up. <clears throat> we'll close in prayer. What steps can you take in your life to remove yourself from sin that is destroying you and maybe those around you? What is that sin? Maybe you don't know. Maybe we should all go to God and say, God, is there anything in our lives? Remember when Pastor Micah had the series Dangerous Prayers? That's one of them. God, reveal anything in my life that is not pleasing to you and take it away. That's a dangerous prayer because <laughs> it may be something that you really like or love. <clears throat> if you're here today and you've never surrendered to Christ, I pray that, that today would be the day that you surrender to Christ, that you, if you hear his voice revealing to you something in your life that is sinful, that you've been holding on to, let it go today, right now. You don't have to come up here and make a show of it. You can do it right there. Just bow your head and just give it to God. Just confess it to him. That's the first part. Confess it to him and then commit to him to take action. God, whatever, whatever you want me to do, show me what you want me to do in your word and I will do it. You can do that yourselves right now. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we just love you so much. God, we thank you, Lord, that your mercy, Lord, your grace is faithful. Lord, we can depend on you. Trust you, Lord. Lord, you are good. Lord, you don't condemn us when we come to you, Lord God, and with our mistakes. Lord, when we even blow it big time, God, you already knew. And all you ask is for us to come to you, Lord. Confession, Lord, to restore humility in us and bring us back into right relationship with you. We don't have to be ashamed, Lord. You lift our heads. Lord, you, you said, Lord, on the cross that it is finished. There's no greater work, Lord, than what you've did, done on the cross, Lord. God, right now, we just come before you, Lord, and anything, Lord God, that you put on our hearts, Lord, we just confess it as sin, Lord, and ask us, and we ask you, Lord, to reveal your will from your word to take action, Lord, and we commit to do what you call us to do. <clears throat> we lay it at your feet, God. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.